This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Some promising developments in the quest for a vaccine. More news today. Another big pharmaceutical company says it's seeing successful results in its trial. We'll talk with an expert about what we know so far about the Moderna trial and what we need to know before a vaccine becomes available. Schools continue to be a source of debate with complaints in Southern California that most are stuck in remote learning while bars and restaurants remain open. So just how safe are schools? Hospital beds filling up across the Midwest with coronavirus patients. Doctors and nurses delaying more non-urgent procedures in order to make room for those patients. And if you're thinking about hosting or attending a Thanksgiving dinner and believe taking a test will be key to staying infection-free, well, you might want to think again. There's an airline that really wants you to fly, now offering a rapid test to every passenger over the age of two. The upside, it's free. The downside, you may have to get to the airport a little earlier than before. Despite the flood of consistently bad news on the pandemic, there are some hopeful signs on the horizon. Moderna is now the second company to report some really positive results out of its COVID vaccine trial. How hopeful should we be about a vaccine coming soon? And how might the development work be used to take on other diseases? Dr. Timothy Shacker directs the HIV program and is vice dean for research at the University of Minnesota Medical School. So, doctor, what do we know and what do we not know about these early Moderna results? Well, first of all, I think this is fantastic news. I think we've been waiting for something like this for um, some time. I, you know, I think it's really important to point out that it's just a little over 300 days from when the uh, uh, sequence of the virus was posted online. And already we have two candidates that are showing just outstanding efficacy, greater than I think we were hoping for. Um, and you know, the, the normal vaccine discovery pipeline is about 10 years. So this is a spectacular accomplishment. What do we know is that in uh, greater than 90% of people who get this vaccine, they are protected from COVID-19, from the virus that causes COVID-19. I think um, uh, there are a couple of differences between these two vaccines. Um, you know, one, Moderna's uh, is one that is easier to handle and use so it can be used and distributed more widely. That's an important uh, point with respect to the, uh, how you would deploy the vaccine. But you know the the reality is is that 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 there's light at the end of the tunnel and it's getting brighter. I think um, this is just really spectacular news. So they'll go well, for this. Yeah, what we don't know, I guess. Yeah, what we don't know. Um, both of these trials are still underway, and so um, you know, in studies like this, especially with um, when you're when you're looking at a new technology like they were with this vaccine, safety is always a huge consideration. And so while we have an efficacy signal, we know that in uh, the vast majority of people, they'll be protected. Um, there is still the important uh, issue of you know, safety. What, what, do we do, what do we know about safety and what we don't know? We know in the short term that, that these are very safe vaccines. Um, and you know, they're, they're going to be these, these people who volunteered for this, these trials, they're gonna be followed for an extended period of time. But um, I can tell you that there has been no signal at all 
uh, from either trial that there is a you know, significant safety concern. But I think that's the one thing that, that is still something to be sorted. This will get vetted by the FDA, though, if they go for this emergency youth use authorization. And that's not an easy process. I mean, they, the material they send over, right, is like binders and binders of stuff that's going to get combed through over, over a few weeks' time? Correct. The, it, correct. Let's talk about the platform, the technology that has gone into both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, because it has never been used successfully, as I understand it, in humans before messenger RNA vaccines. So can you give us a primary in terms that, that well, even Mike and I can understand <laughs> about what well, that means? Sure, I can try. You know, what, what, what they've done is they've taken little parts of the virus, the inside of the virus, um, they've packaged it, so that when it's introduced into your body, it's recognized, it's taken up by some cells. And then um, uh, the, the, the protein, just the, the, the protein that's on the virus is made by those cells and your body's immune system has really uh, outstanding access to those proteins to make antibodies. So essentially what they've done is, th is they've harnessed um, your body's immune system to be more effective, to be to respond better to, to the bits of the virus that, that are being made. It, it, you know, and, I, and I think that that's the other really amazing story here is that um, it, you know, the, this, this pandemic has um, spurned, uh, I mean, sorry, has, has um, brought out research uh, and, and technologies um, that we've never used before, that we've never had before. And, and this is going to open up a whole new line of, of research into vaccines, and it's going to propel the, the field forward even further. I think. You think we can apply it to other viruses that are out there? I do. I think that that, that is what's being looked at. Absolutely. Uh, one quick last question. What we also don't know uh, on both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines yet, uh, if I'm correct, is how long they'll last. Yeah, that's a really uh, excellent point and one that's talked about a lot. Um, uh, so first of all, this wouldn't be the f if if the uh, immunity is not long lasting. It's not the first vaccine that you have to get more than one dose of uh, or get you know revaccinated. But we, we the, the answer is we simply don't know. You know we've 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 been testing this in a phase three trial for you know six months maybe, and um, <clears throat> it's going to take long term studies and long term follow up. To really understand um, uh, how long immunity lasts, but but having said that, uh, you know I think most people, most of us would anticipate that that that, that there will be uh, reasonably long-lasting immunity with this with these vaccines. Dr. Timothy Shacker directs the HIV program, vice dean for research at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Doctor, thanks. The complaint here in Los Angeles that with rising COVID infections, bars and restaurants are staying open, but schools are still closed to in-person learning. Also in New York, officials are talking about shutting down schools again, but the current plan is to keep bars and restaurants open. Here's the thing, though. So far, schools have remained pretty safe. Dr. Nathaniel Beers, pediatrician, Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., president of HSC Healthcare, wrote the American Academy of Pediatric Guide on reopening the schools. So we keep hearing about schools being, again, relatively safe. Also, remember, though, other stories around the world. Israel, at one point, became an epicenter of community outbreaks. They had big problems with schools. So where are we with the safety of kids on campuses? 
Well, I think that uh, it's an excellent question. I think the data when we looked at it out of Israel was not the schools alone. It was the schools and community control together. And as you noted in your intro, the challenge that we have in front of us is if we really want to prioritize children returning to school and child care, we have to make some hard decisions about how we're going to control the disease in the community. And that means we need to be willing to think about whether or not adult-facing services like gyms and bars and restaurants uh, need to continue to remain open or whether we need to prioritize schools so that we can open those facilities up uh, as we are able to get children back in school. Uh, but the data in the United States, as well as around the world, does continue to suggest that having schools open when done safely uh, is not a place where you have substantial widespread of disease in either the students or in the staff. So how do we feel about schools as we go over the next few months? Because we're already tracking the rise in cases all over the country. And and as cases rise in the community, they will rise on campuses, but it's just to that lesser degree. It's not like your outbreaks at, at gyms or restaurants or something, as we've been saying. So is it just a matter of paying close attention to all the safety rules that you can when it comes to keeping the kids there? Yeah, I think that uh, in order for schools to be safely open, you have to make sure that you have masking or face covering mandates in place, uh, that you're enforcing those regularly, because what the data shows is that uh, there's very, there's substantially less spread if both parties are wearing masks. Um, so that's a great way in schools to allow that to uh, uh, be safe. In addition, we recommend the physical distancing requirements. Um, or recommendations that the CDC has put out at six feet. Um, and then it is also about making sure that you are uh, responding rapidly but when there are cases. Um, and so, as you know, there will be cases in schools. We, it, Particularly with the level of community spread that we have, there will be cases in schools. And so if we are going to safely have schools open, uh, we have to be responding quickly um, doing the contact tracing to uh, make sure that exposed individuals um, are uh, quarantining and also uh, making sure that we have adequate notification of students, families, and staff so that they feel confident that their child or themselves are being cared for adequately and can be safely in the building. Is there a different risk level dependent upon the grade level we're talking about? So the uh, data that we saw earlier this year did suggest that there is a higher risk uh, of spread for middle and high school students. Uh, as they get larger, they certainly can expel more uh, droplets. And so we expect that that's a component associated with it. Um, and so some school districts have prioritized getting younger kids back into school sooner, uh, which certainly uh, makes a ton of sense when you think about what's being taught and what the attention span of young children can be, right? Imagine trying to learn through Zoom uh, how to read and how to count. It's a little hard to do uh, unless you have an adult sitting right next to you all the time. And so that's a huge burden on parents and families uh, to make sure that that's possible. And for many children, uh, there will be data coming out soon that will show that particularly for black and brown children, as well as those in poverty, uh, that they are showing huge losses uh, during this virtual learning time. So did we, did we get it backwards? I mean, we sent the college kids back in a lot of spots thinking, okay, they're old enough that they'll pay attention to wear masks and stay apart. Well, they don't because they're in college and they, they want to gather. And it was the young kids that needed to go back 
because that's when you needed them in front of a teacher. If you look at what the National Academy of Sciences put out this summer, we should have been prioritizing our K-5 students uh, as a first priority to return when we were looking at what we should be opening first in our communities. Um, the reality is, is that that didn't happen, and so now we have to step back and regroup. Um, but certainly that would be our first priority of populations to get back in school along with special education students, uh, those who are homeless, uh, as well as uh, those who are having trouble accessing services uh, because they don't have adequate access to uh, the virtual environment. Dr. Nathaniel Beers, a pediatrician, Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Coronavirus infections surging, so are hospitalizations. Across the Midwest, hospital beds are getting filled up pretty fast. Many medical facilities are either running out of beds or preemptively making room in their ICUs. Now, that means non-urgent procedures are being pushed so that hospitals can divert their resources to ICU capacity. WBBM's Cisco Cotto spoke with Dr. Chris Colberts, ER doctor, assistant program director at the Emergency Medicine Residency Program at the University of Illinois, Chicago. For people who maybe are not being touched by this, they don't have coronavirus, their friends or other family members don't have it, uh, it kind of give us a sense on the ground of what it's like there in the emergency room. Well, thank you for that introduction there. So what we're noticing is initially we were identifying increase in <clears throat> positive cases, this transition to increased admissions. This increase from there we transitioned to now a question of bed availability. And from there, just transitions from bed availability to available space and surgery. So it's across Chicago. These elective procedures are being placed on hold or pushed back just to maintain the space and occupancy that's needed for possible emergent procedures and possible emergent procedures. It's extremely important for everyone to be cognizant of the fact that there's a trickle-down theory in reference to bed and availability and the COVID virus. So what you're having here, just to make sure we understand this, uh, you have people who, I mean, I, I don't know what a non, you know, variety of non-elective surgeries, but you have those people who are being told, hey, we, we may not be able to get to you this week or next week. Maybe, maybe we're looking at January or February for this procedure. That is, in, in fact, that is exactly what is happening, um, which is very similar to what happened in March as well. It's just numbers. It's availability. And again, this is across Chicago, not just across Chicago, just across the United States. We're just seeing these numbers increase and you've got to place these patients someplace. So again, it goes back to the statement, it's just a responsibility of not only the hospitals, but also to the public. Maintaining masks, decreasing the fomite spread will significantly mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Many families remain defiant. They are determined to keep their tradition alive during the pandemic and host Thanksgiving dinners and get-togethers, despite desperate pleas from health and government officials not to do so. And some people think that they can protect themselves and their family members just by having everyone get tested for the coronavirus before the festivities. But does that really work? Dr. Patrick Godby, president of the College of American Pathologists. So, doctor, remind us, and the health officials are always saying this, about what testing actually shows. It shows what you are on the day you got tested, and that's about it. That's correct. That is about it. It's a single point in time. Uh, and still, there are several kinds of tests, but the polymerase chain reaction, PCR, is still the gold standard and what people rely on to say, yes, I am or no, I'm not. So do you think it's because people just fundamentally don't understand what these tests can and can't 
show, or is it that they just want a rationalization so they feel good that they're not going to go home and kill mom and dad? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think that people would like to think if I'm going to go visit my 92-year-old mother, uh, I can feel good about it. But I think what we have to remember is we can't test ourselves out of the pandemic. Testing does not replace social distancing, washing your hands, and wearing masks. And we still cannot get enough reagents and enough consumables to do all the testing that uh, we would like to do. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a second, then we'll swing back around to, to maybe what people are trying to do to pull off a holiday gathering if, if they can or if they should. Um, L.A., it's it's not bad. You can sign up and, and you can go and within a couple hours, you can drive up to Dodger Stadium and you can get one. This is not the case in other parts of the country. We've seen pictures of our long lines because we have a stadium to do testing. But other places, we've seen miles and miles of lines because the demand is there and people are just trying to get one wherever they can. That's true. And it's also not the case in uh, certain hospital settings. In fact, many hospital settings, uh, as the number of cases go up, uh, more laboratory directors or pathologists are worried that we're not going to have enough testing supplies. An example of that is a hospital system in rural Georgia. Uh, attached to it is a long-term care facility. And testing demands are such that the hospital can meet its demands but every test done in a long-term care facility has to be sent away and can't be done locally. So to, to go back to, uh, you know, the kind of the dilemma of people traveling, as some are going to do for Thanksgiving and, and perhaps uh, for, for Christmas, um, so testing is obviously not the be-all and end-all. You mentioned masks and, and social distancing. I, I mean— to be honest, the bottom line is that people really should just stay put, shouldn't they? You're exactly right. If you, if you are in doubt, don't go. Stay put. Dr. Patrick Godby, president of the College of American Pathologists. Short break, and then after that, more airlines with the COVID tests before you leave. One of them's free. One of them's not. You may remember about a month ago, United Airlines became the first airline to start offering coronavirus tests to travelers heading to Hawaii from San Francisco. Well, now United is expanding that program, offering a rapid COVID test to every passenger over the age of two and all crew members for free. But this only applies to those flying on United from Newark, New Jersey to London. Joe Schwederman, professor of public services, director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University, was also on with Cisco Cotto at WBBM. What do we know about how this is going to work? I'd imagine you're going to have to get to the airport a little extra early. You know, they're hiring a uh, you know, health uh, professional firm to do this, and it's notable because uh, essentially they're taking all the stress out of showing that you're COVID-free. It's only a test that's going to last for about a month, but we think it's a trial to see if, you know, this rapid test works, if customers uh, uh, take the test without, you know, undue hardship. But it all looks like it could be something that's rolled out uh, in a pretty big way, maybe after the first of the year. Probably looking to see if it makes people more comfortable with getting on flights, if they start to see more people on the planes. 
That's right. And uh, this is notable because it's uh, universally available and they're not uh, requiring you get to the airport a whole lot early, an extra uh, half hour or so. You know, but as this has unfolded, all kind of airports around the country are rolling out uh, fee-for-service tests where you can uh, pay a few bucks, often about $100, $125. Sometimes insurance pays to get a test at the airport if you're flying to Europe or Hawaii so you can arrive proving that you're COVID-free. You know, so just in the last two weeks, we're seeing uh, uh, airlines and airports really jump into the game here. And that could continue until we get throughout the pandemic, right? I mean, until we're past this thing? Well, that's exactly right. And I think uh, that maybe the direction this goes is that eventually to get on an airplane, you may have to show you're COVID-free. We're not quite there yet with the infrastructure in place around the country, uh, but we're getting close. And uh, I think one thing that's been a little disconcerting is these airports that have set up testing sites are charging you know, pretty big bucks, $100, $150. It's unlikely somebody flying, say, from Chicago to Detroit is going to uh, – fork out $100 just to show they're COVID-free. So there's a little work to do on the cost and so forth, but uh, but I can tell you this is so much more achievable than a vaccine, you know, which uh, is still pretty cloudy when that's going to be uh, widely available. Speaking of air travel, what are you doing with your frequent flyer miles that are sitting idly during the pandemic? Hawaiian Airlines wants to help you use them if you are a member of their loyalty program. You can redeem miles for pre-travel COVID-19 test, which is required by the state of Hawaii prior to visiting the Aloha State. It'll be an at-home saliva test. It'll cost you 14,000 Hawaiian miles or roughly $150 for non-members. I'm having flashbacks of when you used to translate your points into money, you know, and it was always like that was the ratio. All right. You can find this podcast on the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.